0: you knew that he cared for you. Can you call him your friend? I'm be sight. The clouds be rolled back as us scroll. The drum shall rejoice.
1: Here it is, the night you've either been dreading or the night you've been looking forward to, the last night of the revival meeting. I want to thank Pastor Wilcox and his wife, Tracy, crazy, Tracy. Our little granddaughter Adelaide calls her crazy. But I want to thank the Wilcoxes, I want to thank Bob and Sarah, and I want to thank all of you here from Joy Baptist Church. Uh, It's been enjoyable for us to come up here, it's an hour and 20 minute drive, which is not a bad drive up here, and uh, we've enjoyed coming up each evening, I think Sunday morning my car is not going to turn the right way out of my house when I get ready to go to church, it's going to want to head north instead of heading south, but we've enjoyed ourselves here, we appreciate it, Uh, you folks are very easy to preach to. And by that, I simply mean this, I've preached in some places where you, had, you felt like you had to chip the ice off before you started preaching. It just, you had to kind of, you know, preachers will get up and talk for a long time, tell jokes and all that, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to get comfortable in the pulpit. Because when you're not in your own pulpit, it's, it's sometimes, there takes an adjustment to get used to. Uh, but this takes no adjustment whatsoever. We get here and we get into the Word of God, and, and you've been ready for it, and God has blessed, and we really appreciate and have enjoyed this week, and hopefully we will enjoy the rest of the night tonight uh, as we go at it one more time. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17. In thinking of a revival meeting, I, I think of myself not as a revival preacher. You know, when I think of a revivalist, I think of Billy Sunday, I think of D.L. Moody. I think of those guys that ran around on the platform and, and did all that kind of wild stuff, and that's just not my style. If I tried to do that, I'd be trying to imitate somebody else. And I'm not, one of those, I'm not an emotional preacher, and I'm not a, a, but I, I try to get you to put your attention in the Word of God. And I try to get you to look into the Bible to see what the Bible says. And I'm not saying that those styles are wrong. That's just, everybody's got a different style. That's all there is to it. And uh, I like like when we look in the Word of God and we dig deep into the Word of God and we get something, but we don't drown. You know, we don't want to get into the Bible so deep that we're sucking for air, you know, and, and wondering if we're ever going to come up again. The Bible has such great depth and such great wealth and information, but it's all practical stuff. And if we look into the Word of God and we read what's there, yes, we find some deep doctrinal truths and we find some magnificent nuggets in the Word of God, but we find that everything in the Bible is applicable to us today. When you have your devotions, when you read your Bible, you need to read it as it is in the the time. When you're reading the Gospels, you're reading about some men that existed during the time of Christ, and that's ancient history for us. That's 2,000 years ago. But when you're reading it, understand there's something in that for you right now no matter where you're you can be back in second chronicles reading who begat who begat who begat who begat who and and you think what in the world and all of a sudden in the middle of that there's going to be a name pop up that you're going to recognize from somewhere else you read and say wait a minute and you'll look at that and somehow you'll come across something that says you know that i know what that means and that's a truth that that i can relate to that i've experienced in my life the bible is like that it's a living book And it it doesn't have to be, as we talked about it, doesn't have to be adapted to our modern society. Our modern society needs to be adapted to it, because it's timeless. We're going to read a story tonight that is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. It's about Paul in Athens. And it's a familiar story and it's a historical story and it's it's an accurate story if it's time, but I don't know of any place in the Bible that gives us a more accurate picture of our modern society than what Paul faced in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Look there if you would in chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. We're going to read quite a bit tonight. I hope you brought your Bible. We're going to read quite a bit tonight in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16 and go to the end of the chapter. Here the Bible says this. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection." And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, "May we know what this new doctrine is, whereof thou uh, new doctrine wherein thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain th- strange things to our ears, which uh, we would know, and we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hills and said. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I find an I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown god, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of them. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by, by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer tonight. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to fellowship around the Word of God. We thank you for the singing that we have heard tonight. And Father, those that have used their voices to lift up our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. and Truly, God, there's no better thing we can do with our voice than to give praise to our God. And now as we come time to look at your word, Father, I pray in this last meeting of our revival, this last night of our revival meeting, that Father, you would encourage us through what we read about the Apostle Paul, Father, to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in these last days. Father, as we see the scenario before Paul that day, we are so reminded of the situation and the circumstances of our day today, and may we have the spirit of Paul that was stirred in him. Father, may we have the determination, and Father, may we have the heart to give the gospel to those that are so in so, such need today. Bless your word to each and every heart. Father, challenge us from your word tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to preach a message tonight that I've entitled, Confronting a Pagan Culture. Romans chapter 1, the last few verses, and we kind of looked at it in Sunday school Sunday morning. Romans chapter 1, the last verses, give us a pretty good, of, uh, a pretty good idea of America morally today. You remember those things? I think it was 23 things that were listed at the end of Romans chapter 1 uh, that just describe our modern society and the degradation of the day we live in. Morally, that's where we're at as a nation. I don't think anything surprises me anymore. We open the paper and we read a new decree from our president or from our government or a new thing, what's popular in the world, and we look at that and we think, how in the world have we gotten to this? Our, our nation is going downhill morally. But Acts chapter 17, though it's written 2,000 years ago about a culture back then, shows us our country today spiritually. Morally, we're in Romans chapter 1, but spiritually, we are in Acts chapter 17. Paul is preaching in Athens. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, Paul is on his second missionary journey when he gets to Athens. He's already been up in the north country. He was running through uh, uh, from Troas. He went north, and he came over to Thessalonica in chapter 16. And while he was in Thessalonica, uh, some people were saved. Look back at chapter, chapter 16. No, the beginning of chapter 17. In verse number 1, they came to Thessalonica... And verse 2, Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and three days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening, alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. Verse 4, and some believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and and, and of the chief women not a few, multitudes and many, believed while Paul was preaching at Thessalonica. He was only there three weeks, three Sabbath days. And yet he was there so long, you read First and Second Thessalonians, which he writes from Athens, where we're going to be reading now. He writes back to them from Athens and the wealth of material he covered that he reminds them of in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. In three weeks, they got a whole lot of it. But the Jews that didn't believe came and ran Paul out of town, basically. And the disciples sent him down by ship, sent him down to, to, after going to Berea, he went to Berea and preached there. uh, and, And notice in verse number 12 in Berea, therefore many of them believed, many, and of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few, a great number of converts in Thessalonica, a great number of converts in Berea. Now Paul takes a ship and goes down to Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to come down to him in Athens. And while he's there, the Bible tells us in verse 16, while he was there, his spirit is stirred within him. Why is his spirit stirred? Well, it says in verse number uh, number, uh, 16, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. As Paul sat there and observed and watched, This wasn't on his schedule. This wasn't on his itinerary. This wasn't one of his destinations. The disciples in Berea had put him on a ship and sent him for his safety down there. He's going to go from there to Corinth where he wants to get to. But Athens is kind of like an accidental layover. And as he gets there and just sits and observes and looks at the city, his spirit is stirred within him as he sees the whole city given to idolatry. The apostle Paul was such a spiritual man that walked with God that when he saw the idolatry of the city, his spirit was stirred in him. You know what the church needs tonight? The church needs to be stirred. The church needs to me. We have become complacent, folks. And when I say the church, I mean us. We are the church. We have become complacent. We are so used to the status quo. We are so used to the current temperature in our nation spiritually that nothing shocks us and nothing, nothing ab- we don't abhor anything anymore. And Paul was stirred when he saw the idolatry. Not only that, but look down at verse 22. Paul then stood in Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Here's what Paul saw when he looked at that culture. They were idolatrous. And they were superstitious, probably reading their horoscopes in the, in the, the daily paper to find out if they're going to have a good day or a bad day, whether they should cross the street or step on a crack, finding out what the, what the fortunes told them, uh, calling into those 800 numbers to get their palms read and all these, they were a superstitious people. I think it's funny that the new Bible's changed that word to superstition and say, you are too religious. There's a difference between religion and superstition. In case you don't know, just last Friday, was it? It was Friday the 13th. If you're religious, who cares? If you're superstitious, you got up that morning and you watched every step that you took. There's a difference between religious and... Paul said to these folks, you're idolatrous, you're superstitious. Then he says in verse 23, I saw an inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. They were ignorant. Ignorant. They were unknowing when it came to spiritual matters. They were wise, we'll see. They were knowledgeable. They were intellectual in so many things. But when it came to spiritual matters, they were bankrupt. They were idolatrous, they were superstitious, and they were ignorant about the things of God. Can anything describe modern day society any better than that? Idolatrous, superstitious, and ignorant of spiritual things. Paul is preaching here in Athens, and as he looked at them, he he knew that this was a, can we call this a university town? Uh, Athens, have you ever been to Athens, Ohio? Uh, For many years, I worked uh, for a wholesale supply company, and I had a sales route that took me into Athens every Thursday, and if anything could describe that Athens, it was what Paul saw right here, idolatrous, superstitious, and ignorant. Now, it was an intellectual town, just like Athens was the intellectual center of the Western world back in that day. They had the leading university there. All the greatest philosophers, you know, Socrates and Plato, all these guys were from Athens. Aristotle and others that weren't all moved to Athens. And all these great minds, as far as the world is concerned, centered themselves there. It was the center of culture. It was the center of education. It was the center of politics. It was the center of all things. But Paul looked and said, you're ignorant, you're superstitious, and you're idolatrous. Isn't it a wonder that cultures like that don't like Bible preaching? And isn't it a wonder that Paul didn't care whether they liked it or not? The thing I like about Paul is he did not try to adapt his message to the culturally elite. He did not try to change his message. Now, you know the Apostle Paul. This guy is not an unlearned, ignorant fisherman like the, the apostles were. This is a guy that was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, taught at the feet of Gamaliel, even exceeded Gamaliel in his zeal for the church. This was an intellectual man. But when he got there, he didn't try to talk big words. He didn't try to impress them with his vocabulary. He didn't try to fit in with them. He just preached the word of God straight, right across the plate, knee high. And he let them know that they were idolatrous. He let them know they were superstitious. And he let them know that they were ignorant. Paul is going to preach them because his spirit is stirred within him. And I want you to notice the reaction to Paul's preaching. When his spirit is stirred and he begins to move around that town look back if you would before we get there look back at ezekiel chapter 3 ezekiel chapter 3 i think of ezekiel when i think of this the lord took ezekiel and set him in the middle of the children of captivity to see their wickedness in the book of ezekiel israel is in captivity and ezekiel maybe doesn't understand why god did that to his people and so God takes him by the Spirit, takes him and sets him down in the midst of the children of Israel that he might behold their idolatry and their superstition and their ignorance. And notice in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse number 15, Ezekiel said, Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv, that dwelt by the river Chibar. You remember, those, you remember David writing that, that those, as they sat by the river, their enemies asked them to sing them one of the songs of Zion? When they were in captivity in Babylon, the Babylonians would come and say, Hey, Jews, sing one of those songs about your great God. Sing one of those songs about Zion, the city of your God. They would mock them and ridicule them. Because the Jews were in exile because God had taken His hand off of them because of their wickedness. And Ezekiel sits down to see it. Notice in verse 15, he says, And I sat where they sat. Kind of like Paul in Acts 17, he sat down and watched the children of Israel. God, why have you punished them like this? Why have you let them go into captivity? Why have you taken your hand of protection? He sat and watched them, and here's what he said. I remained there astonished among them seven days. When Ezekiel saw the captivity of the children of Israel and saw the reason for it and saw their wickedness, saw their idolatry, saw their superstition, saw their ignorance... He said, I just sat there, I just, I can imagine him sitting there with his jaw dropped open. I sat there among them astonished for seven days. Paul gets to Athens and his spirit is stirred as he looks at this city, a cultural, intellectual capital of the world. And his jaw drops, he sits there astonished as he beholds the wickedness that's around him. So Paul, being the apostle Paul, does what Paul does. He can't keep his mouth shut. He's never never guilty of the sin of silence. And so he gets up and he begins to walk around the town. And notice what happens in verse uh, 17 when he does. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. The first people he runs into there in the town are the religious folks. And apparently the religious folks take issue with Paul and what he's there doing and what he's talking about. Because it says they disputed with him. He disputed with the Jews in the synagogue. Now here, here's a bunch of religious folks. Notice it says in verse 17, with the devout persons. Sometime get your concordance out. and Look at that word devout. It's nine times in the New Testament. And that word devout is always speaking about reverential religious people. You remember Simeon that longed for the coming of Christ and got to see Jesus in the temple? The Bible describes him as a devout man. Those that took Stephen to his burial, the Bible calls them devout men. Cornelius, before he got saved, when he was a good man that gave his alms and prayed daily, the Bible describes him as a devout man, before he got saved. One of his soldiers is described in Acts chapter 10 as a devout. So devout is not a bad, it's talking about people that earnestly and sincerely are trying to please God, though they're wrong in the way they do it, they are earnestly and sincerely, they're they're good, religious, law-abiding, law-keeping people. And here they are in the synagogue, and they're disputing with Paul. My question is this. Why aren't they disputing with the idolatrous people? Why aren't they disputing with the superstitious people? Why aren't they disputing with the ignorant people that worship an unknown God? Isn't that just like the church today? Folks will say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm saved. But you give them a gospel track, and they act like it's got poison ivy on it. You talk about the Lord, say praise the Lord, and they get nervous about that kind of talk. And these are, the, these are the devout religious kind of people. You take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in the workplace, and you know what? It's the religious people that give you trouble, not the unsaved people. It's the religious ones that don't want, don't to, want to be a fanatic like you are, so they try to get you to tone down. And Paul gets into this city, and the first ones that he runs into are the religious folks that want him to take it down just a little bit and not get so upset and not get so worked up about all these things. It's much like the modern church today. They're not going against the world. They want to blend in with modern society. You know, when you and I begin to fit in with modern society, there's a problem with us because if we're washed in the blood if we're saved if we're redeemed we are a round peg trying to fit into a square hole when it comes to this world don't be determined to fit in now i'm not i'm not talking about purposely being an oddball all right there there are you know we all know folks like that their religion makes them just weird but i'm talking about don't don't desire to fit in because you don't want to offend them you don't want to you know the problem with modern society and modern churches is we want to blend in i would challenge you google this blended worship service and that is a common phrase among the contemporary church today you know what it means it means you sing a few hymns out of the hymn book but then you get the band up there to play and turn the lights down and entertain the younger generation if you want to call it that It's a blended service. It's 50% traditional and 50% contemporary. You know what it is? It's blending into the world. It's trying to fit in. Let's take their music, and we talked about this one, let's take their music and bring it into our church, hoping they'll flock in here to see it. And it doesn't work. That's the way the church was. That's the way the synagogue was when Paul went there. Here Paul sees this town that that is spiritually bankrupt and the synagogue, the church, the devout people are doing absolutely nothing about it. May it never be said of Joy Baptist Church in Orville. May it never be said of Bible Baptist Church in Bizeville that we just fit in and we're just fine and nobody ever gets offended. We sent out when we first moved down to Byesville five years ago, we moved from Cambridge down to Bysville. It's a six-mile move. But we went from a little building that seats 80 to a building that'll seat 400. Now, I wish we had 400 people in that building, but it, it will seat 400 people when we get there. And when we got there, we sent out mailers to everybody in Bysville and Cambridge because we wanted them to know where we're at. And we sent one about every six months for the first maybe two or the first three years. And we're in a new little town. Byesville's only 1,500, 2,500 people, something like that. One stoplight. We went down to the post office, so everybody knows everybody in the community. And I walked in there, and as I opened the door to go in, I heard these people saying, "Did you get one of those cards?" (laughs) I got one of those cards, so I just kind of backed off to listen to the conversation, and they were just, they were just amazed and offended that a church was putting something in their mailbox and sending them something. And, and, and we, put the God, we, we didn't put anything offensive on there. We just put the plan of salvation. We put the gospel message. We're not trying to fit in and blend in. We don't care if we're odd from all the other churches around there. You don't care if you're odd from all the other. If we're serving God and doing right, Paul was doing the right thing, had the right message. The synagogue, the devout folks, were just tolerating a society that was wicked and sinful. And Paul said, I'm not going to have this. And the first dispute he got into in the town was with the religious people. Notice the second thing. That's the synagogue's reaction. Notice the other people's reaction the end of verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market. I like this about Paul. He didn't think the church had to stay in the church. He was in the synagogue, but he's also in the market you know what our modern culture wants us to do and and you can google this too keep it in the church they don't mind what you believe about abortion they don't care what you believe about homosexuality they don't care what you what you think about transgender bathroom use and all they don't care what you think about it as long as you keep it in the church now here's the wild thing they're allowed to talk about it everywhere They're allowed to put it on the news. They're allowed to put it in the paper. They're allowed to put it in the schools. They're allowed to put it everywhere. But you and I are supposed to keep our religious talk inside the church. That might have been the problem with the synagogue. That might have been why they weren't affecting their society that was superstitious and idolatrous and ignorant, because they were obeying the laws that be and keeping it in the church. You know, you're not just a Christian when you walk in that door. You're not just a believer when you come in that door and when you go out, you check your religion, so to speak, at the door and and blend. We're talking about living a completely different life. We're talking about confronting a pagan culture that's outside of this door everywhere that we go. You sit down at a restaurant and eat and the music that's playing is from a pagan culture. You sit down, they'll have television screens in the corners of restaurants and they're promoting a pagan culture. Now, not all of it is sinful and wicked and ungodly, but it's, I, I, I don't think I've ever been in a restaurant, maybe I have, but have been in a restaurant where I went in and the music was praising God. Never gone into a restaurant to eat that had the televisions and it was religious broadcasting and even that probably wouldn't be so hot anyways. But we're living in a pagan culture. Paul had to contend with those inside the church. Then he had to go out in the streets and contend with those in the street. But at least those that were in the street were wanting to hear what he said. Notice in verse 17. And and in the market daily with them that met with him. You know what what modern, we'd call those seekers. They 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 wanted to talk to him. They wanted to hear what he said. Those in the synagogue didn't want to hear him those in the market those in the street did want to hear him your pastor announced that a week from tomorrow night you're starting visitation you know why because those folks aren't going to hear it unless somebody in here goes out there they're not going to get it in their neighborhoods they're not going to get it at their workplace unless somebody like the apostle paul they're going to work among a, a whole bunch of devout people they're in, the, in everybody's workplace or in their school there's probably other christians you can do that. I can look back now at my high school years. I was not saved when I was in high school. I got saved when I got out. And, since, and now with Facebook, you know, you can recontact with everybody. Even ones you don't want to, you can recontact with everybody. And now I found out that some of my friends in high school were Christians. And I didn't even know it. One of the girls that I graduated with that I knew fairly well in high school, on the back of her senior picture, she said, I'll write to you from uh, Wisconsin. I'll write to you from Wisconsin. And I I thought, well, she must be going to Wisconsin. She went to Maranatha Baptist College. I didn't know she was a Christian. You know, there are people out there in the workplaces, in the schools and all over that are Christians, but they're keeping their mouths shut. They're not telling anybody anything. If we do the same thing, what are we going to accomplish? What's going to happen in the world we live in? Paul had his spirit stirred within him. When he saw the city, so he began to walk around. And the first ones that confronted him were the religious folks. Then he got to meet with those daily in there as he took the message outside. You know, back in Acts chapter 5, they told the disciples not to go and preach in this name anymore, but they went out into the streets and the people began bringing people that needed healing brought them into the streets, and the people said, you have filled all Jerusalem with your doctrine. Not the synagogues, you have filled all Jerusalem with your doctrine. The church's job is to take the message of Jesus Christ, not just in here, but out to the rest of the world. Paul did that, and those met with him. Notice the third reaction, beginning in verse 18. We've seen the reaction of the religious folks, we've seen the re- reaction of the sinners or the average people, But then we find the scholar's reaction in verse 18. Then certain philosophers. See, even when you say that word, you have to say it. Philosophers. (laughs) Can't just read then certain philosophers. Of the Epicureans. Notice, Notice the word. Of the Epicureans. And of the Stoics. You know what the Epicureans were? The Epicureans were those that were materialists. They believed that this life was all that there was. And that, so you should do whatever you wanted to do in this life that made you happy. There was no right, there was no wrong. What's right for you might not be right for me. What's wrong for me might not be wrong for you. It's all, it, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. That was their philosophy of life, the Epicureans. And they believed that everything was fine. If it works for you, it's okay. You know, that's the philosophy of our society today. It's no different 2,000 years later. Did I mention also the Epicureans were atheists? They had no belief in God. They just had a belief in getting through this life and enjoying this life and doing whatever you wanted to, much like most people today. That's all they're trying to do is get through this life and enjoy it as much as they can because they think when it's over, it's over. Those are the Epicureans. You know what the Stoics were? The Stoics were people that believed in taking care of yourself in looking only at yourself. There was no, materialism was not something, it was all improving yourself. Diets, exercise programs, self-help. Isn't that, isn't that prominent in our society today? I, I, my wife has got me in a very healthy, conscious mode. All right, and that's a good thing. And I I drive to work in the morning and I I have the radio station, sometimes ESPN on, and I'm listening to it. And the ad is for some chemical, some bottled stuff, and I forget what it's called, that will take care of that belly that's bloated. (laughs) You know, you have a bloated belly, so if you will send us $99.99 or whatever it is, we'll send you this little bottle of stuff. And you know what I've learned if you stop eating some certain things, your belly won't be like that, and that's a lot cheaper than the ninety nine ninety five for the little bottle they're going to send you that probably isn't going to do anything anyways. But we're always looking for some way to improve ourselves easily, some pray, some, some way to advance ourselves easily. You know, you you can become a reverend. Uh, I was listening to my favorite sport, hockey. And my announcer, the announcer I listen to, is always he's, he never cusses, he never swears, he's got little phrases he says that are just old-timer, cute kind of things. And I always thought, you know, there's something about that. And then one day I found out he was going to do a wedding for somebody, he is an ordained minister. So I went online to find out, oh, what religion is this guy? He's no religion, he went on and got his, or, he got his degree for 25 bucks out of California somewhere, and now, he can, now he's ordained to be able to marry people. This world, just anything to help yourself, anything to advance yourself, anything. That's what the Stoics did. And that philosophy is still here today. And that's what it says in verse, certain philosophers. You know, the only, word, the only time philosophy is used is in Colossians chapter 3, and it's in a negative sense. Don't get caught up in the philosophy of the world. And Paul is, Paul is now confronting these philosophers. And notice what they say in verse 18. What will this babbler say? You know what they do? They don't attack his message. They attack him. They don't attack what he's saying. Now, they will in a moment, but before they do that, they go after him. You know, that's the problem that the world has with us today. We tell them about, the, about salvation through Jesus Christ, and they criticize us. Who are you to tell me? Well, this isn't about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ who died on a cross for their sins so they could have eternal life simply by asking for forgiveness. But their eyes are in the wrong place. Their eyes are on the people. Again, the reason our modernistic church is is, is changing its system is because people's eyes are on the people, they're entertained by what they see, not by what they hear. They want to see a production. They want to be entertained by it. And that's the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics who are talk, talking to Paul and saying, what will this babbler say? Now, I, I think you understand what babble is. I could have Adelaide come up here for a couple minutes and preach for the next five minutes. And when you're done, I want you to, I want you to tell me what she said. All right, babble, babbling is something that infants do, something that young children do. That, remember the Tower of Babel? Where God confused their languages and to each other it just sounded like, like that? All right, that's what they're saying about Paul. Paul was a smart intellectual man. And yet these arrogant people, these people in Athens, this cultural elite, they look down at this guy, look down their nose and say, what will this babbler say to us? That's the way scholarship looks at the church. That's the way intellectuals look at the church. You can go on a college campus and you can, you can meet young people that will be open to the gospel, but you'll hardly ever meet a professor that's open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've already made their decision. They've already determined, and now they're spreading that to the young people that sit under their teaching, and that's a disastrous place to be. Paul's spirit was stirred within him as he saw the reaction of the synagogue, the reaction of the seekers, the reaction of the, of, the, of the scholars to the message that he had. And it's the same way the world is today. Then I want you to notice second in verse 22. Paul is an independent, fundamental, King James Bible-believing Baptist preacher. Now I know you want to argue with me on that. And I understand that. But here's what he does. When he sees the city given to idolatry, he stands up on his soapbox, and he opens his Bible, and he lets go. And he preaches a sermon. This, all the sermon is not recorded here. You know, when you, read, when you read things in the Bible that Jesus spoke on this, other than the Sermon on the Mount he spoke here, or, the, or Peter's sermon at Pentecost, you're not reading the whole sermon. God has... Thankfully, just taking the high points and recorded that. That'd be like somebody taking this message tonight, deleting out all the filler, and just putting the high points in it. You say, wow, that guy only preached two and a half minutes. <laughs> all right, in the Bible, God many times gives us, doesn't give us the whole sermon, but gives us the context of it. And here we read Paul's sermon. His sermon to those folks. And notice how, how applicable it was to the people he was preaching to and how it fits our modern society today. Notice his introduction in verse 22 and verse 23. Paul stands up and, it, and he says, now I like the word said because look up in uh, verse, the end of verse 18. He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them. When it says Paul said, he wasn't sharing. When it says Paul said, he was not giving a talk. When it says Paul said, he was preaching. And he says to them, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. That was not a compliment. He was not trying to win friends and influence people. He was, in his introduction, he's already offending a good number of the people in his audience, but he wasn't worried about that. He wasn't worried about entertaining them. He wasn't worried about keeping them appeased and happy. He was worried about them getting the truth and hearing it and understanding it. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. That's his introduction before he even begins a sermon in verse number 24. That's, that's how he introduces himself. He calls them, again, superstitious and ignorant. Now, I must be a compromiser. Because in my introduction tonight, I did not call you superstitious and ignorant. That's because it's the last night of the service and you're going to give me a love offering and I just I didn't want didn't to call you names on the last night of the service. So. But Paul did not adapt his message there there are those that have studied paul said he adapted his message to the people he spoke to no he gave the same message everywhere he went he didn't back down to the to the intellectually elite he didn't back off he called them superstitious and ignorant and then in verse 24 again think of his audience think of who he's talking to he's talking to the university town he's talking to the professors and the students of all the great philosophers And he begins to go right for the juggler. In verse 24, God that made the world and all things. You know what he starts on? Science. God that made the world and all things. He's attacking the evolutionists right off the bat. You know, that's the way God works. Back in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. You know, that, that statement right there just defeated all kinds of things polytheism, pantheism, all all the evolutionary teaching, everything was destroyed by, in the beginning, God. Paul begins that way. He said, God that made the world and all things that are in. He just blew their science notes out of the water. Everything they just learned for those years under Professor So-and-So about the evolutionary process and, and the dinosaurs and the, and the Cro-Magnon man that evolved into this guy and all that kind of... He just blew all that by saying, God that made the world and all things that are in. Notice, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth. He goes from science to astronomy. You know that Athens was the astronomical center of the world for teaching? looking and inventing the telescope and looking at the atmosphere and looking beyond it to find out. And Paul just incorporates it. He's not been there very long. This is not a babbler. He's been there long enough to get them pegged and knows exactly where they're coming from. And he preaches on science and he preaches on astronomy and he preaches on materialism at the end of verse 24, that that God dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He says in verse 25, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need you. You need God. Paul says, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Those of you that think you're self-sufficient, you Stoics. Those of you Epicureans that think, you know, just go and get whatever you need. What you need comes from God. Paul is addressing them right where they are, right at their level, without holding back, without cutting back on anything. He says in verse 26, And he's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the earth. That's history. Remember Hitler with his superior race? Thinking that that, that the the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Germans were the superior race, and there are those that believe that of different denominations. You know what God said? He's made of one blood all nations of the earth. There is no superior race. And so, and so Paul gives them the, tells them he's the God of history. He's given them political science is what he's doing. Political science 101. Then he says, and hath determined the times before uh, appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Now he's the God of geography. He's the one that determined who lived where. You know, we look at our modern society and say, why do Africans live in Africa? You know, what is it? uh, Three out of every five children born today speak Chinese? Aren't you glad you weren't one of them? The world, the way it's divided, God split it up and put the Europeans in one section. You go back to Noah's Ark and where they went when they left the ship, and God divided the people right there and set up the bounds for their habitation. God is a God of geography. And so Paul is, Paul is explaining to these people that everything they need, verse 27, lest they should seek, that they should seek the Lord, that they might feel after Him, and find Him, though He be not very far from every one of us. God is nigh. God is near. God is at hand. And Paul is telling these intellectual folks, these people that think they got everything, He's right there. This would be a good, simple, concise message for every university town today. We don't need great speeches we don't need great oratory all we need is the simple truths of the Word of God Paul goes down through verse 29 or verse 28 in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring you know we're all the offspring of God God created all of us we're not all God's children but we're all God's offspring we're not all God's children because Galatians says in Galatians three twenty-six. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You're all the children of God by faith. If you're not by faith in Christ Jesus, you're not children of God. Jesus said in John 8, 44, to those religious folks that rejected him, ye are of your father, the devil. So not every human being is God's children. You know, the the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. No, that's not a Bible teaching. But we're all God's offspring. He made all of us. And so Paul is telling them that. He says in verse 29, for as much as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the God is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art by man's devices. Then, that's the end of his sermon. Actually, there's four points there. We didn't go through it. Uh, verse 24 is the greatness of God. Verse 25 is the goodness of God. Verse 26 to 29 is the government of God. He's the ruler. And verse number uh, 30 is the grace of God. So Paul, in his message... Four-point outline, and even quotes a poet in it. He, in verse number 30, he begins his invitation. And he says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Notice at the end of his message, what Paul preached was repentance. He told the people, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your philosophy. You need to turn away from your education. You need to turn away from your intellect. And you need to turn to the simple truths of God. Paul is speaking that to a very cultural, elite group of people. And he says you need to repent in verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world. You know what the world needs to know about? That they need to repent because there's a judgment ahead. That's Paul's invitation. He's preached the message. Now he says, you need to repent. You need to turn from your wicked ways because there is a God that's going to judge the world. Not by your standard, not by an intellectual standard, not by an educational standard, but he's going to judge the world in righteousness. You and I don't want to be judged by righteousness. Not even us that are saved. We don't want to be judged by a pure, spotless example. Folks today, again, think, well, as long as I live better than that guy, as long as I'm cleaner than that guy, as long as you do better than that guy. And they always pick the bad guy when they make that comparison. They don't compare themselves to somebody that's better than them. They compare themselves to somebody lower on their, their moral ladder and say, well, I'm better than him, so I'm okay. You know who they're going to be compared to at judgment? It says in verse 31, that man whom he hath ordained. When you stand before judgment, you're not standing back next to Susie or Sam or anybody else you're standing next to Jesus Christ and when you stand next to Jesus Christ guess how you're going to look so we stand you stand next to Steve and you say well I'm not so bad you stand next to Jesus Christ you don't have a leg to stand on and he's going to judge the world by that standard and so Paul is telling him, you need to repent you're going to be judged You're going to be judged as a standard of that man. And notice he gives the invitation in verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Here's the response Paul, the Apostle Paul, got from his sermon. You know, if you walk out of here and make fun of everything I said, that puts me in good company. Because some mocked. The Apostle Paul, the babbler, They made fun of what he said. They mocked what he said. You remember what we read in Thessalonica, multitudes believed, and of the chief women, not a few. Remember what we read in Berea right before he came here? And multitudes believed, and of the chief women, not a few. You know what happens when he gets to Athens? Some mocked. Paul didn't have the results in Athens he had in the other places. You know what that means that means the the higher the intellect in a society the harder their hearts are the more brilliant they think their minds are the harder their hearts are and that's the world we live in today we live in advanced technology we live where somebody can get an answer to any question anytime just by googling it they can look on wikipedia don't ever trust wikipedia you know, if you're understanding, you know what, Wikipedia, it's like getting the encyclopedia, but it's just written by some guy that thinks he knows more about it than anybody else. It's open to anybody to put their thoughts about it. You don't know who you're getting when you read that. But we live in a world that thinks that they've got all the answers to everything, and their hearts are hard. We have a fellow in our church that does the fair ministry in, in several counties, and he goes during those weeks and hands out tract. and he's told me for the last two years, people are harder today than they've ever been before. They're not as open to the gospel. They're not as friendly. They've hardened their hearts. That's these right here. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. You say, well, that's good. No, they put it off. They delayed a response. They're like the one that said, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You know what almost being persuaded to be a Christian is? It's lost. We sing the song, almost persuaded, almost, but lost. You understand there's only two ways, saved and lost. And if you're not saved, you're lost. There's no middle ground. There's no middle territory. And there are a lot of folks that think, well, I haven't received him, but I haven't rejected him. Well, if he's made the offer and you didn't receive it, you've rejected him. And here are some people right here that, that rejected it. We will hear thee again of this man. By their putting it off, they have rejected the message that Paul gave. We don't know if they ever heard him again. We don't know if they ever got a second opportunity. This was their chance. Paul had preached it to them, and they were interested enough to say, you know, I want to hear about this again, but not interested enough to make a commitment. There were some that mocked. There were some that put it off. But verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. You know what certain means? Not very many. Certain's not a multitude. Certain's not, and of the, of the chief women, not a few. Certain men believe. I believe we're living in those days. We're, believing, we're living in the end times. Now let me say this, that doesn't mean that the church should lose any fervor in winning lost people to Christ. But we understand what the Bible teaches us, that in these last days, men's hearts are hardened against God. And it is tougher than it's been before. But it doesn't eliminate our responsibility of giving them the gospel. We need to confront this pagan society that we're living in. And we need to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we're almost done. We're almost checking out of here. The Bible says that the time is coming where there's going to be a voice from heaven and a last trump. I think that's an unusual word, don't you, for our times right now? A last trump. It didn't say a last Bush. It didn't say a last Clinton. It said we're going to hear it at the last trump. Now, I know that might be pushing the limits of Bible interpretation just a little bit. But I think we're getting getting close to that last trump. And that means when that's done, this thing's all over. This plan is all over as far as you and I are concerned. And those that are without Christ will remain without Christ for all of eternity. It says, and certain of them clave unto him and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite. You know what that means? That was one of the philosophers. That's where Paul was preaching in Areopagus. And here Dionysius is one of those philosophers. When Paul's words were being spoken and they were mocking and ridiculing, there was one of them there that it hit home to. And he ended up getting saved. You never know. You never know. When you're giving the word of God, when you're witnessing at work or you're talking to somebody and everybody's making fun of it and mocking your beliefs and mocking your you know, old-fashioned religion, there's somebody in the back that's saying, he's got something I don't have. She's got something I don't have. And later on, they come around and ask a question or two. Here's, here's Dionysius, the Areopagite, and then a woman named Damaris. Not a whole bunch of women, not a whole bunch of chief women, but at least one. And the Bible says, and others with them. Not the multitudes, not the not a few, but certain of them. Because Paul was faithful in a society that was superstitious and idolatrous and ignorant. He was faithful at giving out the Word of God. No matter what they would say about him, no matter how they would react to him, he was faithful at giving out the Word of God. You want Joy Baptist Church to be blessed of God? Give out the Word of God. Be a witness and a testimony for Jesus Christ.